Let's go to the Lord in prayer, okay? Oh, Father, thank you that we have great hope and great comfort. The trouble does indeed come our way. We battle the flesh and the world and the devil. And there is coming a day when you will fix it. You will fix it all. You will fix us and make us new. You will bring in the new heavens and the new earth. And you will put the deceiver of the brothers in chains. And he will be in the pit of hell forever. And your people will sing and make a joyful noise unto you. And because of what we know about what you've done on the cross and where you are now, we trust that you are returning and you will make all things new. Thank you for that. And so, Father, we are a people of great hope. And so, Father, give us your blessing now by your spirit, uh, embolden the preached word, uh, soften our hearts that it might take root there and remind us again that singleness is good. Do this, I pray for your glory. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians 7, and um, I'm going to read verses 6 through 9, and then we're going to skip down to 25 through 38, and we'll come back and deal with the meat that's in between of this sandwich, so to speak, at a later date. 1 Corinthians 7, and we'll be started at verse uh, 6. Now, as a concession and not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of this present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I will spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers, the appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they have none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with this world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, 
anything under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Man, amen. Do you know right now we're in what the culture commonly calls cuffing season? And some of y'all are laughing because you know what cuffing season is. It's that time of the year from November to February. It it begins with the dropping of the temperature and and the holidays. And it culminates really around Valentine's Day. And the world will tell our single people, it's cold outside. Find you somebody to boo up with, snuggle with, do whatever with. And then once Valentine's Day is over, hey, be single again, right? Go, springtime is a coming. And these pressures from the world make it difficult for believers who are single and celibate because the world is telling them you don't have to be celibate. Set that aside and and go play the field and be free, right? That's what single people are hearing from the world. But then they're hearing something different that's also difficult from the church. And here is what they hear from the church and they hear it around their dinner tables, around holidays. So who you dating right now, right? You ain't dating nobody yet, boy? When am I have some grandbabies, right? <laughs> and so imagine being a single person and you're not dating, that that brings about shame. And then it's further Shaming because you get to a passage like Genesis 2. And and I preached this before at weddings. But here's what we'll say when we read Genesis 2. The first thing that's not good in the Bible is what? Adam's aloneness. It was not good for him to be alone. And so then we infer that the cure, the catch-all cure for Adam's loneliness is what? Eve, a woman, and somehow Eve completes Adam. And so we look at that passage without nuance, and what our single people begin to feel is if I don't give my last name to somebody, or if I don't take somebody's last name, then I'm less of a person. And they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Can I be single and celibate? and secure, and satisfied. I think what Paul is getting at is a new age has dawned that does enable our single people to live single, celibate, satisfying, and secured lives without giving or receiving a new last name. And the the hint to this is found right there, right in verse 29, where Paul begins to say, the appointed time has grown very short. For now on, let those who have wives live as though you have none. He's not saying divorce your wife. He's actually saying something colossal has happened that, has, that, that, that changes everything. It changes the way single people see themselves, and it should break in and change even the way that married people see our marriages. Paul's way of saying a new day is dawned 
We're living on the other side of the cross, the coming of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus has fulfilled some things and has inaugurated this beautiful final age that we now live in. And so I was I was digging around in Breeze this week and discovered that we're a church where 57 percent of you are single. Out of a church of 1,122, 57% of you are single. 43% of you are married. And you might be wondering, why does the 43% who are married need to tune in on a passage about singleness? Sam Alberry reminds us, and I think this is an excellent book, Seven Myths of Singleness, He says, it is rare for a married couple to die at the same time. Bereavement will turn many of you who are now married, you will be single again. It is sobering and sad to think about it, but it's necessary. If you add to that number the amount of marriages that end in divorce, the proportion of those who will become single for a second time rises even higher. A ring on your finger now is no sure sign that you will not be single in the future. It's better to think carefully and biblically about singleness now rather than later. And so last week, our single brothers and sisters sat as we unpacked the beauty of sex in marriage and for some of them, it was preparatory. They, they, they may get married in the future. And so it was pre- preparing them for that. But some of them will not get married. And so hearing that is also a reminder to them right here and now how to pray for married couples. Right. But I want to switch that for some of us who are married. You're going to hear me talk about singleness. And it is to prepare you. Because you might lay your spouse to rest and you will live the rest of your days single and you will be tempted to think this is impossible and for some of you walking through hardships we just need to know So what I want to tell you first is that singleness is a gloriously good gift. Singleness is a gloriously good gift. Now, goodness is a theme of 1 Corinthians 7. Remember last week, Paul is saying, hey, hey, you wrote me about these matters. You say that it is it is not good for a man to touch a woman. And Paul says, no, you got that backwards. If you're married, it is not good that you not touch. Like if you're married, it is good to have sexual relations with your spouse. Right. So the past the, the chapter is about goodness. And then Paul's going to add something else that's good in the same chapter. Marriage is good. Sex in marriage is good. And singleness is good. And celibacy when you're single is good. Now, Paul has three types of single persons in mind, and not that they're different types, 
but three different ways people find themselves single. That's a better way to do it. First, he uses this language of the unmarried. Look at verse, verse 8, to the unmarried. That word there is only used in this chapter in the entire Bible. And Paul could mean the unmarried men or women who are well beyond what, what he's going to talk about later, sort of the, the, the coming of age, right? These are some probably older unmarried folk who've never been married, right? He has them in mind, but then he also has widows in mind. Look at verse 8, to the unmarried and the widows. And as I sort of did some digging, what do you think of? What image comes to mind when you think of a widow? I know who I think of. I think of 70 years old, kids and grandkids. But in Paul's day, the life expectancy was around 45 years old. Many women died giving birth. Many children did not live after birth. Teenagers died. There was no modern medicine as we know it. And men died in war. And what this did was it took the average life expectancy down. And so in your mind, don't think of a seven. He, 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 he is talking about the older widows, but he could very well be saying, I'm talking to you, who's the same age as your pastor, who has, who think you might have 40 more years, 20 more years. I'm talking to you as well. And then Paul uses this language of betrothed. And you see that it's used five times in this chapter. It's only used anywhere else by Paul's writing in 2 Corinthians. Some of your Bibles translate betrothed as a virgin. It has a wide range of meaning. It could mean a chaste woman who is of age now to marry and to bear children. It could also mean a woman who is dating someone seriously and there is a, a formal engagement. But for Paul's purposes, until they walk down the aisle, they're still, she's still single. And there, there's even one scholar who says that what you might see happening here is, is, is a caretaker who has of age women in his household. And what, what may be happening there is he has growing affection for one of them and she has growing affection for him. And what Paul is actually telling this man is like, hey, if you can't behave properly towards her, don't abuse your power. You marry her. But notice what Paul says to all of them who are single for various reasons. You've never been married or you were married and now your spouse is deceased or you're coming of age. Notice what he says in verse eight to the unmarried and the widows. I say it is good for them to remain single. Verse 38. Look at what he says. He who marries his betrothed does good, but he who refrains from marriage does even better. Do you see? Three different ways these people are found single, and Paul gives them the same advice. Singleness is good. Now, how can he say that? How can he actually say that for, for some, singleness is even better than marrying or remarrying? How can he say it? Because he gives us the clue in verses 6 through 7. 
He says, now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. So Paul is single. Later in this book, he's going to say, hey, we have the right to take on a believing wife, but I have not made use of that right. And so Paul clearly could have gotten married, but he chose, it seems, to deny himself that, that he might be better devoted to the church. And so Paul says, hey, this is not the Lord. This is me. I wish that all of y'all were like me, right? I wish that all of y'all had what I have. And he says, but I'm not God, right? But each has his own gift, Marriage is a gift. And Paul is actually saying, if you're married, that is a gift from the hand of a good God. And if you're not married, that too is a gift from the hand of a good God. And what he's saying throughout his entire book, I think it's his working theology of God's good gifts. Remember how the book began? You are not lacking in any gift. As you wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ, he will sustain you until the end. Then you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and he's talking about these grace gifts, right? Some of you have the gift of the spirit, well, not the gift of tongues. And some of you have the gift of interpreting tongues. Some of you have the gift of administration and wisdom and prophecy and healing and miracles. And, and Paul is, and what's happening in the church? They're looking down on each other for the gifts they don't have. In other words, you don't have the gifts of tongue. I do. I'm better than you. And you don't have the gift of organization and administration. I'm better than you. And you, you don't have the gift of healing. I have the gift of interpretation. And, and Paul is actually saying, hey, don't you know the spirit gives out his gifts as God sees fit? And rather than comparing your gift or coveting somebody else's gift or walking around with your nose high because you have this gift. He says that the, the, the way the gospel is supposed to work is you are supposed to receive the gift you have from the hand of a good God and use your gift in the service of that God and the good of other people. And what they were doing, we think, is some were flaunting around, we're married, right? And you're not. Or we're single and you're not. And Paul is actually saying, y'all stop it. Both are good gifts. Sex and marriage is good. And singleness and celibacy is good. It's good. And this is why I had Wilson read Matthew 19. Jesus put them both together. Did you catch that? Marriage is good. Divorce is, was only put in there because you're sinners. The, 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 the point of marriage was a forever covenant until you die. And then the disciple says, oh, this is too hard. He says, yeah, not everybody can receive it. Some, those who can receive it are like the eunuchs. In other words, this, this commitment that you're calling me to, to love and to forgive and to forbear and to count another person better than myself, not everybody can do that. And the ones who truly get how big and glorious marriage is, some of them might say, oh, I well, who can do that? It's eunuchs who've been given their gift to have singular devotion to Jesus. 
And notice what Jesus says, just what Paul is saying. Marriage is good and singleness. However long God has you in it, it's good. You're not a second class citizen. You're not missing out. You're not incomplete. No other person is going to complete you. Singleness is good. Now, what I want to do next is really talk about some of the, 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 the heartaches and the blessings of singleness. Some of this is, is not in the text. If you read 1 Corinthians 7, you, you won't uh, see Paul unpacking this is what makes singleness hard. It almost reads like an over-glorification of singleness. Wait a minute, Paul, you're not telling me why it's hard. All you're telling me is why it's good. And remember last week when we looked at 1 Corinthians 7, I told you, hey, don't look at that chapter and think that this is Paul's magnum opus on sex. All Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7 is that sex is there uh, because it, 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 it enables us to flee temptation. But I said, hey, to be responsible, you got to step back and see the manifold goodness of sex and marriage. And for that, we, we stood back. We have to do the same thing in this text. What makes singleness hard? One, beloved, is loneliness. So I take this for granted. But every day when I walk into my house, I'm greeted by three other humans and a dog. Really, every time I get home, my, my door closes, my dog starts barking, I walk to the door, and, and I can't make it in the house before he is, his big self is just like brushing up on me, like rub me, pet me, right? And then I walk into the rest of the house and I can usually smell food and we're usually checking in. I just have other little people at home waiting for me every single day. And so when I take a walk, I can take one of those other little people and say, hey, let's walk together. Or if I work out, I can get this other little person and say, hey, why don't you come out here with me? Or if I'm having a cup of coffee, I invite another little person to like come sit with me. And we go on vacation into a new city and I have another person to go with me. And when the remote is on this side of the room, I call another person. And when I can't find my glasses, I get another person to do it, right? And then there are weekends when my little people have to go somewhere else for a wedding, a funeral, and I have to be here. And then I walk into my house and it's quiet. And ain't nobody waiting on me at the door. And ain't no pot on the kitchen, right? And it's nobody to lay next to. And it hits me, the void, how much joy that having other people in your life, how it brings joy. And, Paul, and the Bible says this, two are better than one. Because they have a good reward for their toil. For if one falls, another will lift the fellow up. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, and there is no one left to lift him up. And if two lie next to each other, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not easily broken. And when you read the rest of Paul's writings, you, you, you discern that loneliness plagued him. 
In 2 Corinthians 11, he talks about, I was at shipwreck. He talks about, I being hungry, about I being persecuted by all my people, my kinsmen and my enemies. In in, in 2 Timothy, he talks about being in jail. He says, everybody has left me. And he says, Timothy, you come see me. That's Paul wrestling with loneliness. And if you're single, that's hard. Everybody has people that they come to, and you wonder who's looking for you. I get it. There's also unfulfilled sexual desire, and that's actually in this passage. Any Christian who takes seriously the ethics of the Bible, you will find two things. If you're single, you will find these sexual longings that are there by design. And until you're married, you also hear God saying, do not gratify them. You were made to be intimate with one man or one woman in the covenant of marriage, and you're not ready. It is too powerful. It is too good of a thing to do something different than this. And so notice the text. Three times Paul brings up Passions. If your passions are under control, then don't marry. That if your desire is under control, don't marry. If your passions are strong and they are not behaving properly, then let them marry. It is not sin. If they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And so think about who Paul is writing to. He's not writing to the world in Corinth. He's writing to the church in Corinth. And in the church, you have godly men and godly women who are attracted to one another. And they are some are not behaving properly. And that probably means you're touching her in ways you shouldn't touch her. And you're doing things that you should not be doing that are reserved for marriage. And I'm here to tell you that if you can't control that, it is a good indicator that you don't have the, this gift of singleness and it is better for you to marry and to marry soon in the Lord than to burn. But if you take singleness seriously and chastity seriously, as a single person, you will experience longings. That's why Deuteronomy 23 speaks of the nocturnal emissions of a man and the female body produces eggs and the male body produces sperm and and God wired us for attraction. And, 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 And the Bible is simply saying, hey, if you're single and not married, Subdue it. And if you can't and you're dating, then marry. And this is what makes it hard. But there are blessings to singleness. And I want to I hone in on those. Singleness can be a blessing because it frees the single person from some things. So we're going to look at if, what it frees you from and then what it frees you to. And I think that's what Paul's doing here. It frees you from present distress. Look at verse 26. Notice what Paul says. He says, um, 
I think in view of the present distress, some of your Bibles might say impending distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Scholars are divided. What does Paul mean? Some say that there is a famine and there is wars and the rumors of wars and the return of Jesus looms large. And what Paul is actually saying in light of all of this and the return of Jesus, hey, don't get distracted with Mary by marriage. Maybe he might be saying that, right? But I think there's more. I actually think if you were to look at Luke chapter nine, Jesus says, follow me. And then one man comes to him, Jesus, let me go and bury my father. And another man, Jesus says, follow me. And another man says, hey, let me go say goodbye to my home. Let me go say bye to my wife. And Jesus says, he who looks and puts his feet to the plow and then looks back is not worthy of the kingdom. What is Jesus saying? He's actually saying in a, in, in a strange way, your love and thirst and hunger to be in the arms of another person, that that can distract you from the arms of Jesus. It's what happened in Noah's day. What were they doing? Marrying and giving themselves in marriage. And then distress came, right? Paul could be saying, for some of you, be careful. Your desire for something good is more than what it should be. And you will miss Messiah. But he also talks in verse 28 about worldly troubles. He says, yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I will spare you that. So Paul seems to think that, that there are, we all got troubles, right? We just sang about it. Troubles in my way. After, Jesus will fix it. After a while, we all got troubles. But he says, there seems to be a different type of troubles that come with marriage, that are unique to marriage. He says, I will spare you that. Look, when you're single, you don't have to worry about how a new job in California will affect your children. You don't have to weigh that against another spouse. You don't have to think about, can my spouse or my children thrive there? There are some troubles that are introduced that come with marriage, and rightly so. When you're married, you owe the consideration of your spouse. You owe that to your children. Woe is the man or woman who does not take into account the other people you are in covenant with. And Paul is actually saying, hey, there are some troubles that come with being married. And there are some worldly things. Look at verses 32 through 35. And here, I don't think worldly means sinful. I think he just, this, this is just par for the course. Notice what he talks about in, in, in verses 32 through 35. Is the unmarried man is anxious about things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. And so what Paul is actually saying is it's not just troubles, but getting married we have to worry about things, how to please another person. Their interests are divided. So when I got converted, I was working for GE. And the running joke inside of my house is how I chose to live. I lived in a one-bedroom in a partially subsidized community 
with old people. And it was the cheapest place in the city. I got on the internet, what's the cheapest place? I wanna go, what's cheap? My couch was a futon that I bought from Walmart and put it together myself. That was my couch. The sheets that I laid on were like 100 thread count sheets. Like it kind of itches when you sleep on them, right? I slept with a pistol next to my bed every night in case somebody came in my house. I did not have life insurance. I wasn't thinking about none of that. I'm going to stack this money. That's what we're going to do, right? And then I got married. And my wife is not materialistic. But that 103 account sheet, it itched, bro. <laughs> I, I didn't know. I, like, I, I literally did not know that they made 1,000 thread count sheets. And I didn't know how good it feels to sleep on it. And I had to get a new couch. And so one of my coworkers was relocating. I said, hey, Tori, can I buy your couch? Yep, you can buy it. That was our first couch. And I was working third shift. And Karen was home without me overnight. And I got her a dog. And we had kids. And I got life insurance. And I sold my truck that had rims and speakers and all this stuff that I loved. <laughs> and your boy, we bought a minivan. <laughs> like 20 years ago, me, a minivan? We ain't no soccer mom, right? And now you have to buy braces and tennis rackets and baseball bats, piano lessons. You gotta pay for car insurance with a 16-year-old. And here's the thing, I wouldn't trade it. My family is not a burden. It's a gift. But I'm telling you, single people, there are troubles and things that you have to have in marriage. And what Paul is actually saying you're free from that right now. Now, you're free from some stuff, and you're free to some stuff. Now, what the world will tell you what to do with your singleness is ball out of control. Do some retail therapy all the time. Take this trip from here and be on this next beach next week and this next beach this next week and, and shop till you drop and you got to get every new thing that comes out, right? That's what the world is going to tell you. But notice in the gospel, you're free from some things and you're free to something. And what are you free to in your singleness? Paul says in verse 34, the unmarried is anxious about the things of the Lord. You can have a good and ordered life by giving your undivided devotion to the Lord. You catch that? My single people are free in a way that others are not. To love Jesus. And to love what Jesus loves. And to love who Jesus loves. You're free to teach and to visit orphans and to 
visit widows in distress. You're free to give of your wealth and live off of less. You're free to consider missions across the street and around the world. You're free to sing, to teach children, to be in community groups, to cook meals for new moms or the sick. And I want to publicly thank the great godly single people that Jesus has put here. We see you. And our lives are enriched because of you. And you're free not just to be busy. You're free to abide better. You see, we get up at 30 minutes before I get up, 30 minutes before the kids got to get out the house. And I'm rushing. I'm, I'm awful in the morning. And you're free to linger to make your coffee, go to your favorite chair, and just to sit and chew on the word and to meditate. You're free after work to come home and take a nap. And you don't got to do homework with nobody. Like, y'all, I so want to ride my bike, right? I so want to ride it. With this dude, I got kids who got to get taken places. And to practices, right? Like, like the, the single person, you pick, you open up your calendar, it is open. The married person with kids and, and a wife and a spouse, it's some placeholders already on there. So we're not throwing shade, I promise y'all we're not. It's just, it's, it's, these are troubles and you're free. It's hard, I know. And it's also beautiful. And I want you to see it. I'm going to finish with this. Jesus meets you in your singleness and enables you to live a secure and satisfied life. My single people, I want you to remember that Jesus became fully human. He was a sexual being, but he lived a celibate life. He was never married, never had a romantic relationship. And he was not calling others to a standard he was not willing to embrace. He is the example of the perfect man. He is the most complete and fully human person who ever lived. His not being married is not incidental. It shows us that none of these things, marriage, romantic fulfillment, sexual experience, is intrinsic to being a full human. You catch that? He came as a celibate, satisfied, secure, single man. And it means a few things. It means that he understands your loneliness. It means that he understands temptation. It means that he understands the blessings and the hardships of singleness. And it means that he sympathizes with you. And he says to you, I'm always available. I'm yours forever. And I'm never going anywhere. It means that in the ways that you complain and are impatient with God and you resent it and the way that you might fall into sexual sin in it, you have to believe we have a celibate, joyful, beautiful Savior who is 
atoned for your grumbling and your falling short on the cross. And he is not only sympathetic, he is victorious. What moved Jesus to come here? It was love. Paul is going to say in 2 Corinthians 11, of all those things that he could have said, he says, I betrothed you to one husband and to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. The only other time Paul uses the language of betrothed, it's there in 11. And he says, look, I betrothed you through the gospel to your one husband. And it's Jesus. Why would Paul do that? Because he's picking up on Hosea. In the book of Hosea, Hosea has to go and marry Gomer. And Gomer is an unfaithful wife. And then Hosea is told, but I will allure her back. I will draw her back. I will deliver the bells out of her mouth that the one who was not my people will be my people. And I will take her through the valley of trouble and make it a door of hope. And I will betroth myself to her forever for an everlasting covenant. And so when Paul says that to them, you know what he's saying? You know what was driving Jesus to leave the right hand of the Father and to come here and to die and to go to the troubling place, to the cross, to turn the cross into a door of hope for you, to allure you to himself, to be your ultimate husband forever. What's driving Jesus is love. Your heart was made for a husband, but not just earthly men or women. It was made for him. Can't nobody love you like Jesus. Who is going to deliver your soul from hell? It's not one man on this earth right now that can do that. Who is going to cover your sin? Who is going to call you forth out of the grave? Who is going to snatch every tear from your eye? It's not an earthly spouse. If you put that weight on earthly spouses, you crush them. It's meant to point us to our true spouse. And guess what? He is yours. He gives you himself. He gives you the church my single people. Jesus says, some of you will lose mother, father, sister, brother in this life, and I will give you mother, father, sister, brother in this life and in the life to come. You know what that means? You're not alone. Look around this room. We're yours. We're your older brothers. We're your older sisters. We are your friends bound in the gospel. And that means in as much as we are calling single people to love and serve the church, God is also calling the church to love and be present in the lives of our single people. Jesus as a single man was always around friends. Men, women, fishermen, tax collectors. He was a friend. And Jesus gives you his future return. He is coming back. And when he returns, it's going to be a wedding. 
And you may not walk down the aisle on this side of glory, but you will in the new heavens and the new earth. You will be arrayed in white linen. You will walk down the aisle. And the way that grooms look at their brides who break open that door, your Savior looks at you with that affection. And you will have a reception. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb where he will serve you. And you will enter into his joy forevermore. He gives you himself. He gives you the church. He gives you his future return. He gives you eternity with him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, your word is good and it is rich and it is deep. And we have scratched the surface. I pray for our body here. I pray for my single brothers and sisters that they will feel encouraged and seen and known. I pray for married couples who will come alongside and love and serve and invite in. Father, I pray for protection. We know that marriage brings many troubles and cares, and I do pray for our marriages that you will uh, guard and keep them. Lord, I present your people back to you and pray that by your spirit, you will make us more righteous and more holy. Do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.